If you were to portray this scene with a painting, how might you depict it? Or maybe, if you're not qualified to put together a decent painting, maybe if you were to go onto one of those new AI image creators and to give the uh, generator a prompt, how would you prompt the AI to output an image, a painting, that has all the features that you would want to capture in order to rightly portray a scene like this. As I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but as I read this passage, almost picture it in the form of, a, of an oil painting, sort of in the, in the form of a Rembrandt painting. If you know Rembrandt, he was famous for oil paintings. Things that I would want to include, of course, is I would include the crowd coming with their torches, their torches sort of piercing through in the paint, and their weapons approaching Jesus as if he was some threatening military-type military revolutionary. I would have Judas right up close to Jesus in the act of, of kissing him on the cheek and betraying him. I would, uh, you, would, you would see uh, Peter, I would want to capture Peter sort of in the midst, actually in the midst of, of, of brandishing his sword and swinging it, his reaction. And then I would want to have all the rest of the disciples sort of fleeing into the darker edges of the painting, all running different directions. And then, of course, the young man as well, who is in the midst of turning to run as a soldier grabs his garment. And I would want this painting to have a really dark um, body to it, most of it incredibly dark, so that in sharp contrast, in more of a bright light, I could have center in the painting Jesus himself. Now, Rembrandt, that's the style that my AI machine is using, Rembrandt was known for his amazing ability to portray light in his paintings, where you actually felt like the painting had light coming through. And this created then a contrast between the dark parts of his paintings and the light parts of his paintings. And oftentimes, painters like Rembrandt will, would use light in their paintings to cause uh, the viewer's attention to naturally fixate and attend to certain portions of the painting. So if you've ever taken art classes like in school, They'll even teach you that. Like there, There's a way that your mind, your eyes sort of naturally are drawn to certain parts of the painting if it's done well, that become the focal point. And that would be Jesus. He would be lit up, and everything around him would be dark, creating this stark contrast between the chaos around Jesus and Jesus standing there in the midst of betrayal, in the midst of crowds with swords, in the midst of Peter inappropriately responding with violence and the disciples fleeing into the dark. I would want to portray Jesus very prominently, looking very resolute, settled, composed, unwavering, determined, and unhindered in the midst of it all. And that is the, the, the thrust of today's passage, is that Jesus is a resolute Savior. Jesus is depicted here as a resolute Savior, one who is unwavering, and unhindered by betrayal, false ways, and abandonment. Jesus is a resolute Savior, unwavering and unhindered by betrayal, false ways, and abandonment. And so like our imaginary uh, painting, 
What I want us to do is I want us to see our resolute Savior amidst that dark, contrasting backdrop of betrayal, false ways, and abandonment. We'll look at each of those in turn, those dark backdrops. There's sort of a contrast being portrayed in this text. We'll look at betrayal, the false ways, and then the abandonment of Jesus. So first, beginning with betrayal. We see here that Jesus is a resolute Savior, first of all, unwavering even in the midst of deep and personal betrayal. Read with me verses 43 through 45. And immediately, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And, and these three groups, chief priests, scribes, and elders, uh, the, the crowd was sent by them. These would be the constituent bodies of the Sanhedrin the Jewish governing body at that time. Verse 44, Now the betrayer Judas had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, or teacher, and he kissed him. Judas is described here as one of the twelve. And we, as the reader, would already know this, of course. We've already been told who Judas is. And so in some ways, this seems like it could be redundant. Why is Mark going out of his way to tell us that he's one of the twelve? I think it's meant to highlight the shocking reality that it's actually one of Jesus' very own disciples who is here betraying him. That it, this betrayal comes from within the very ranks of his own inner group of disciples. We learn from the other Gospels that Judas' motivation was likely that of greed, as he was even accustomed to stealing from the group's uh, money purse. And he betrayed Jesus in exchange for 30 pieces of silver, which is about four months' wages for a day laborer, or in today's terms, about $7,500. And Judas uses a kiss, this sort of tender gesture of friendship in the ancient world, now being misused as the very means of betrayal. I just want us to consider how deeply personal and hurtful this betrayal would have been. That, that maybe you too have experienced betrayal by a close friend and you've felt the sting of broken trust. For three years, Judas was with Jesus as Jesus taught the crowds. He was with Jesus as Jesus fed the 5,000 and as Jesus calmed the storm and as they arrived at the other side of the sea and Jesus cast out a legion of demons from the demoniac. Judas was a real person. He was there with Jesus in these things. He saw Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from death. He saw Jesus heal blind Bartimaeus, and he even saw Jesus walk on water. He would have accompanied Jesus in his travels. They ate together. They ate their meals together. They probably conversed over them. They got to know each other. They became friends. They lodged together as they traveled. He was there when Jesus would pull the disciples aside to explain things to them and answer their questions in more detail. 
And yet here, it's one of Jesus' very own disciples who betrays him. And so the first thing I think we see here in this dark contrast of our image is we see the depth of Jesus' resolve highlighted as he remains steadfast even in the midst of such deep and personal betrayal. That even as he is betrayed, we see him remaining faithful and pursuing the course of salvation that he is purposed to accomplish. Jesus is a resolute savior, unwavering even in the midst of betrayal. That if you think about yourself, if, if you've been betrayed or if you can imagine being betrayed, when, when that happens to us, what do we want to do? We often want to throw our hands up. I'm done. Or we want to lash back. The last thing we want to do is continue the course. But that's exactly what Jesus does here. Secondly, we see that Jesus is a resolute Savior, unhindered by possible false ways. So here I'm alluding to our, our, uh, our sermon series title, The Unexpected King. Embrace the true way of Jesus. There's a true way of Jesus, in other words. And, and here I'm saying Jesus is un- unhindered even by the temptation or the possibility of pursuing false ways, inappropriate ways, ways that are not of his kingdom. Look at Mark uh, 14, 46 to 49. And they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. They arrest him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as a as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. You see, why are they arresting him here? Uh, We've seen from the very beginning of the gospel that very early on the religious leaders have been seeking an opportunity and plotting to arrest Jesus and destroy him. We see this mentioned even as early as chapter 3, verse 6. Why why exactly do they want to arrest and destroy him? Various reasons are given. Ultimately, they don't like him. Um, He's been accused of blaspheming for claiming to forgive sins, for instance, in chapter 2. And he's he's violated the Sabbath in their their eyes, chapter 3. These have all been reasons stated for for their accusations against him. But their actions here, as well as Jesus' response, as we saw, it seems to suggest that they saw Jesus as a potential would-be violent revolutionary who might lead an armed rebellion. Mark mentions a crowd who comes to Jesus ready for a fight, armed with swords and clubs in verse 43. Their actions here seem to then assume his messianic claims. And Messiah is another word for king. It's the anointed king. Jesus was claiming to be the king. And so maybe they're hoping they'll be able to charge him for sedition based on such claims. One of the disciples that uh, John 18.10 identifies this as Peter, uh, he acts out this sort of misunderstanding of Christ's kingdom, thinking it needs that Christ's kingdom needs his acts of violence in order to ensure and bring about its arrival. We we see that he cuts off the the, the servant's ear, probably 
the reason is he misses the guy's head either as the sword uh, hits off his helmet or maybe the guy ducks out of the way and he dodges but still manages to clip his ear. We see Jesus rebuking the crowd and implicitly rebuking his own disciple here in verse 48 when he says, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Now, to be clear, Jesus is not here being accused or thinking he's being accused of stealing things, as if robber is the idea of he's a thief. That's never come up in the book. Rather, the word here translated robber actually means insurrectionist or a revolutionary. It is one who leads or participates in a revolt or rebellion. And so the New Living Translation, for instance, puts it, renders this verse this way. It says, uh, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs against me? For instance, you may remember that eventually, when Jesus is before Pilate, Pilate will give the crowd the option to either release Jesus or another prisoner named Barabbas. Pilate puts forward two men charged with the same thing, in other words, as we learn of Barabbas, that he was, quote, among the rebels in prison, the revolutionaries in prison, who had committed murder in the insurrection. Jesus' nonviolent surrender here, his resolve to submit to what is before him, is obviously in sharp contrast then and shows the ridiculousness of their presumptions and their actions. Nevertheless, despite this misconstrual of Jesus is, Jesus will end up being crucified along such rebels, as Mark 15, 27 tells us. That and, and with him, with Jesus, they crucified two robbers, same word, rebels, revolters, one on his right and one on his left. The, the sentence that was oftentimes given to such would-be rebels' crucifixion. Verse 49, Jesus says, Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me then. What gives? Day after day, Jesus was out and about openly in public. Why did they not arrest him then? As we've read repeatedly now throughout the Gospel of Mark, this is most likely because they feared the influence of the people. As, as Mark 12, 12, for instance, says, that they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people. And we have other instances of this as well, where they, they, they don't want to uh, take action that will put them in disfavor with the people. Nonetheless, we see here their misunderstanding of the nature of Christ's kingdom. As Jesus says in John 18.36, standing before Pilate, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, if it was the sort of kingdom like these worldly kingdoms are, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. It's not like the kingdoms of this world in that way. It doesn't advance by the same means. In fact, Jesus' kingdom, we learn from the Gospel of Mark, actually comes in quite a quite contrasting way. It actually comes through service and even sacrifice. Look back with me at chapter 8, verse 31 and 30 through 35. In verse 31, chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus began to teach them, 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And then what happens? Peter, who just finished confessing that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the king, he's the anointed king, he's the Messiah in other words. Peter has come to at least some partial sense of who Jesus is. He recognizes the identity of, the, of Jesus. He is the king, but he hasn't yet grappled with the nature of Jesus' kingship. So Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This opposition to the true way of Jesus is actually satanic. And not only so, not only does Jesus say that this is his way that he is going to follow through sacrifice, but notice verse 34, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him, let that person also deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, whoever tries to hold on to it and keep it, they will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever abandons it for my sake and for the gospels will save it. This is the unexpected way of Jesus that we've been looking at throughout the book. That Jesus achieves his kingship. That Jesus accomplishes his kingdom, brings his kingdom into being, not by fighting, not through violent means, but through sacrifice and service. It reminds us of our time in the book of Revelation, where in the book of Revelation, John hears of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion, this militaristic symbol. But then he turns and what he sees is that of a lamb. That the way Jesus accomplishes his kingdom is actually not by the militaristic imagery that one, of, that one would have associated with the lion. But he conquers. The, the use of conquer throughout the book of Revelation is, is very counterintuitive. We conquer, Jesus conquers by actually dying. And so two believers throughout the book are said to conquer by being faithful unto death. Not conquering by triumphing over their enemies in a physical sense, but conquering by falling in the path of Jesus, faithfulness unto death. And so to hear we see in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus' kingdom comes through sacrifice and service. His own, but then also all those who follow in his footsteps. So Mark 10, at the end of the, the way section, the beginning of the book, we looked at the beginning of the way section, chapter 8. Now we go to the end of the way sac- section as Jesus closes. Chapter 10, verses 43 and 45. You remember here, James and John... They are, again, confused about the nature of Jesus' kingdom. They think that the kingdom for them is, means privilege and priority and that they're going, to be, they're going to be first. And, of course, first means everything that they want it to mean. But Jesus teaches them the upside-down nature of this kingdom. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you in my kingdom, those who are great, they must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, they actually must be slave of all. The kingdom of Christ is defined by sacrifice and service. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom 
for many. We see this modeled in Jesus himself, and the servant is not greater than his master, as Jesus says elsewhere. And so we notice in these verses that the way of Jesus is also the very same path for those who would follow after him. And this is why we've titled, the subtitle for our series is Embracing the True Way of Jesus. That statement, if you haven't picked it up yet, is actually meant to have a double meaning. One, we are to embrace who Jesus truly is, embracing the true way that Jesus himself was called unto, a a king who actually dies for our sins, which we realize, we look at the example of Peter, he resisted that. Get behind me, Satan. But not only are we to embrace the true way of Jesus himself, the true path that he follows, but there's also an element that we need to embrace the true way of Jesus for ourselves, embracing the way of Jesus as the one who also calls us to live, following in the footsteps of sacrifice and service as the means and the way of the kingdom. And so... We must avoid the sort of thinking that Peter succumbs to here. I like as one, one commentator I read put it, have you chopped off any ears lately? Or do we potentially engage in chopping off ears, so to say? The Puritan, J.C. Ryle, famous for his book Holiness, if you know that book, but the Puritan J.C. Ryle said this remarking on this passage. He said, we shall do well to remember this, in all our endeavors to extend the kingdom of true religion, as we think about extending the kingdom. It is not to be propagated by violence or by an arm of flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical in that sense. It's not by might nor by power, but, my, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, citing 2 Corinthians 10. He continues, the cause of truth, the gospel, It does not need force to maintain it. False religions like uh, Mohammedan, how does he say that? Mohammedanism, he's meaning Islam there, okay, have often been spread by the sword. False Christianity, like that of the Roman church, talking about, thinking about like the medieval Catholic church that used violence, inquisition. False, false, Religions, false forms of Christianity, have often been enforced on men by bloody persecutions. But the real gospel of Christ requires no such aids as these. It stands by the power of the Holy Spirit. It grows by the hidden influence of the Holy Spirit on men's heart and consciences. We might say it advances by the preaching of the gospel. There is no clearer sign of a bad cause in religion than a readiness to appeal to the sword. And there's much that we can learn about this even today, even if we aren't likely to literally pull out swords to try to establish Christ's kingdom. I don't suspect suspect many of us are ready to do that or thinking to do that. And let me be clear, so everyone hears me really clearly, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about things like politics or the direction of our country or seeking to see God's word reflected in our legislation for the good of our neighbor. Those are all good and right things for us to to attend to, obviously. And we want to do so Christianly. But as we approach another tumultuous election year, we too can face a similar temptation to that of Peter. We can be tempted to feel that we need to resort to using any means necessary, even rather questionable means, like pulling out our sword, like Peter, if you will, all in an attempt, as we see it, to sort of 
ensure and maintain a sense of God's kingdom in the public square. Like Peter, we can start to act as if Jesus needs us and our inappropriate measures to ensure the preservation of his kingdom. Newsflash, he doesn't. He's enthroned at the Father's right hand. He has it under control. Among other things, this temptation is born out of a failure to grasp the true way of Jesus, that we too are called to bear our crosses. This is what Peter misunderstood. He thought he was called to bear his sword when he was really called to bear his cross alongside Jesus. When we have the expectation, though, that the the Christian life will mean my comfort and my safety or a privileged and protected place in society, like the rest of the country embracing my values, then when we feel those things are being jeopardized, like Peter, we are tempted to bring out our swords, so to say, to protect and preserve these things. But the way of Jesus shows us a kingdom that's actually accomplished by suffering and service. This is how Jesus achieved his kingdom. And so we expect nothing less for ourselves as we seek its advancement between his first and second coming. We expect to bear our own crosses along with him. And so here we see Jesus is a resolute savior, unhindered by possible false ways. It makes me think of, uh, of the devil's temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. You remember in Luke chapter 4, the devil uh, tempts Jesus three times. And the second one, I believe it's the second one, uh, it says this. It says, the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will, if you then will worship me it will all be yours. And Jesus resisted the temptation to achieve the kingdom by the wrong means, to go about it the wrong way. That Jesus resisted the temptation to pursue false ways. We see here, again, in the garden, his resolve to go to the cross for us. And thirdly, we see Jesus is a resolute savior unhindered even by abandonment from his own disciples, unhindered by abandonment. Read verses 49 and following with me in chapter 14. Jesus says, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me then, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, previously, all of the disciples pledged their loyalty to Jesus, saying that they would never fall away from him. Look back at chapter 14, 27 to 31, for instance. Verse 27, Jesus said to him, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the sheep and the sheep will be scra- or the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And notice that. So even as Jesus is uh, convinced that his word that God's word will be fulfilled here in the in the dispersion of his uh, disciples, 
he is also nonetheless confident in the fulfillment of scripture that he will gather them back up again. That's not the end of the story. I will go before you to Galilee. We see that at the end of the book. But notice how the disciples respond here. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I'm different, Jesus. I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And of course, even in the garden, three times he fails to stay awake and pray. And three times he will deny him at Jesus' trial. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And notice, they all said the same. But of course, despite these pledges of loyalty, as soon as they saw their master arrested, the fear sets in. They immediately are afraid for themselves, and so they abandon Jesus, leaving him to his fate. And apart from the upcoming trial of Peter, we will see Peter again when Peter denies Jesus. But apart from that, this is actually the last time in the entire book that we encounter the disciples. The last thing we read of them is them running away and then Peter denying him three times. Now, we also get this uh, picture, this kind of humorous picture to us of a, of a young man who runs away naked. This is the first streaker in the Bible, right? Many speculate that this young man is Mark himself. He's not mentioned in the other Gospels, so people tend to think, for, for decent reasons, that it's Mark. But regardless, we're told it's a young man. And he serves to add to this sense of all those who desert, Je desert Jesus in his moment of greatest need, demonstrating this total abandonment from all of his followers. And the point is this, then, that Jesus was left entirely alone, deserted by all of his closest friends, as he submitted himself to the cross. And I think we're meant to identify with the disciples throughout the book in general, but here then as well. This passage makes me think of Romans 3, where Paul says, There is no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. And so here the disciples all turn aside. We're meant to identify with the disciples, that they are meant to represent all those who seek to follow Jesus and yet struggle to maintain the strength to do so. We are like the disciples here. Like them, we have all gone astray. But Jesus is depicted in contrast as totally in control of the situation. He's not taken by surprise. In fact, if you look at verse 41, he predicts his own arrest. He says, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, notice this, while he was still speaking these words, while he is talking about how it's his hour and he's going to be betrayed, Jesus or Judas came and did just that. It's not something that takes him off guard. He says it's his hour. He knows exactly what's happening for it's been the plan all along. He's been ordained for this. You see, normally when someone is being arrested, they're taken against their will. They're not the ones who are in control. But here, there's no hint of desperation or resistance on Jesus' part. These events aren't being forced upon him. Rather, he speaks as if these events are a course of action he freely chose for himself, that he's in charge of 
that God is ordaining. He's in full control specifically because he's fulfilling the predetermined purposes of God as set forth in the scriptures. We see this in verse 50, or sorry, in verse 49, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is not a surprise. This is not an accident. This is the fulfillment of scripture, of God's plan. And although Jesus was physically the victim, we see here there is a deeper sense of who is actually in charge of the situation, that it is God's purposes that are guiding these events. And throughout the book, we've seen this theme that the Son of Man must suffer, that it's ordained for him to suffer. Just listen to these examples. Uh, Mark 8.31, as we already read, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Chapter 9, verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise again. Chapter 10, verse 33 to 34. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. We're going there. I know where I'm heading. And the Son of Man will be delivered. This isn't a surprise. This is the intention. He will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Each time the resurrection is also mentioned. And so Jesus here, we see, is resolved to go to the cross. Jesus is a resolute savior, unhindered even by the abandonment of his own friends. And maybe you can think of a time when someone has let you down. I think maybe a common experience, unfortunately, no, no shade on contractors, but sometimes when people are, have a contractor, um, I think of like the Barrows were redoing their bathroom years ago. We were doing our basement, and we actually didn't have, a, have, a, have too much of an issue with that. But I know the horror stories of people having these contractors who don't sort of prove reliable, and the project just gets extended and extended, and they sort of let you down. That's sort of a mundane example, right? You can make do without having your bathroom or your basement of use, even though it's annoying. But think about the Savior. Would you want an unreliable Savior? Someone that you couldn't depend on. Someone who is prone to let you down. But we see here that Jesus is actually the only, ultimately, truly reliable friend. Then when we are prone to betray, when we're prone to, to flee, we're prone to treachery, we see that Jesus is the reliable friend. That our friends will fail us. Our family members may fail us. If you haven't become aware of this, even churches and pastors will fail us. But Jesus never fails us. Jesus is a resolute savior, unhindered even by our abandonment. And he proves reliable then, even despite our unreliability. That when we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's the contrast here between the disciples and Jesus. I like how one, one commentator put it. He says, in this present passage, the self-sacrifice of Jesus that we just saw in the Lord's Supper is then contrasted dramatically with the infidelity of the disciples, their unfaithfulness. It is, in other words, not the worthy for whom Jesus lays down his life, 
but precisely for the unworthy, even cowardly and unfaithful followers, the people that Jesus is going to die for, the people who abandon him. It illustrates the truth of Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe you can identify with the disciples here, that, that maybe even you, like the disciples, have found yourself saying, Jesus, I'll never deny you. I, I'm going to stop committing that sin. I'm going to make these changes to my life once and for all, only to fail time and time again to find yourself among the disciples fleeing Jesus. But as we see in this passage, Jesus' resoluteness to be our Savior doesn't fluctuate with our actions. It doesn't fluctuate with our performance. That Jesus' faithfulness doesn't hinge on mine. It isn't in response or dependent on mine. It makes me think of Lamentations 3, where the center of that book, it says the steadfast love of the Lord, and I think we can say the Lord Jesus, God himself, the steadfast love, steadfast love of the Lord Jesus never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You see, it's not the strength of our faith, but the strength of its object that saves. Let me say that again. It's not the strength of our faith, but the strength of our faith's object that saves us. Imagine that you were choosing to sit on a branch in a tree. Now, you can have incredibly strong faith in an incredibly weak branch. And the strength of your faith, no matter how much faith you have in that weak branch, it's not going to increase the likelihood of that branch actually being able to support you. But if you sit on a strong branch, even if you just barely have enough faith to do so, to get out on that branch, even if your faith is shaky and, un and wavering, what's the branch going to do? It's going to hold you regardless. Your security doesn't hinge on the strength of your faith, in other words, but the strength of the branch. And that's how it is with Christ. It's not the strength of our faith, but the strength of its object, Jesus, that saves us. We see here, then, Jesus is a resolute Savior, unwavering and unhindered, even by betrayal, false ways, and abandonment. And this passage comes on the heels of Gethsemane, right? In Gethsemane, we see a window into the agony that Jesus was about to face on the cross. I like to think of Gethsemane as a prelude to the cross. It's a lens for understanding what he was about to do on the cross, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, this cup of drinking the very wrath of God. We see how deeply horrific that was going to be for him in his cries of agony. And yet, despite how incredibly horrific, he was nonetheless resolute and unwavering. He says, yet not what I will, but your will be done, but what you will Father. Jesus is resolute even to the point of death 
for our sins. On the, that, that by his death, Jesus says he is drinking the cup of God's wrath. The, the, this image from the prophets of a cup filled with wine that causes one to stagger as they drink it. That is what we deserve for our sins. We deserve to be made drunk with the very wrath of God. And yet Jesus drinks that cup, every last drop of it, for all those who trust in him. And he did this with a resolution, as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured that cross, despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so as we seek to bring this to bear on our own lives, it's worth considering what if this wasn't true? What do we gain from this by considering if this wasn't true, what would be the case? Well, we'd have no confidence that Jesus would in fact save us. If Jesus wasn't resolute in his determination to save us, we would have nothing to bank on. We'd have no reason to have confidence that we would actually be saved. Or we'd feel that his decision to save us might be dependent on our performance, fluctuating. That maybe if I behave well enough, I can convince Jesus to save me. Or at least not cause him to abandon his plans to save me by my poor actions. But as it actually is, we can have confidence and assurance. And this makes a difference then Monday through Saturday. That when I fail as a parent, that when I, when I snap at my kids, or when I fail as a spouse, and I don't treat my spouse the way I ought, or I fail as a friend, or when I fail to represent Christ or share him with my coworkers and neighbors, or when I'm struggling with mental illness and I feel like an absolute mess, like I'm completely unlovable, what, what's there to love about me? Or when I continue to struggle with that sin, we can, we can know that Jesus is determined to save me, that Jesus' attitude toward me isn't altered by such things. That I am able to rest in the assurance of Jesus' determination to save. And yes, I strive for obedience and I, I strive for holiness and to progress in those things, but I don't do so out of a place of fear but out of a place of knowing his acceptance. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, let us see in the Lord's Supper the very heart of Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a picture, and it's a promise to us, a promise put in picture form of Jesus' very determination to save us. And the Lord's Supper, notice that phrase. Don't, don't, don't let that miss you. It's not my supper. It's not Crossway's supper. Who's the one hosting the meal? It's Jesus himself. He is the host, ultimately. He's the one who instituted it. He's the one who gives us these promises in symbolic form. And so when you partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, I want you to consider that, that it is Jesus who is extending these elements to you. It is Jesus who offers you his body and blood in death for you. And it is because he was resolved to do so, not based on anything that you have done, but purely by his determined grace. He has planned and he accomplished your salvation.